controversies over the Bible is who wrote it? Who wrote the Bible? It says, holy men of God were moved. We know that the Bible is written by holy men. One of the problems is, is if you study the letters that Paul writes, there's two different kinds of letters. And almost every commentary that you'll pick up, they start 1 Timothy out, well, there's controversy about who really wrote 1 Timothy. Because Timothy wrote a personal letter to Timothy. His other letters are to the churches. And you would not write the same style to your best friend or your, the person you're mentoring as you would to the congregation of the church. So that's why sometimes the authorship of 1 Timothy is called into question. And since they're getting really antsy in their seats, we're going to let the little ones go. See, now you can go, because I told you you can go. <clears throat> this is actually, there actually is a letter that goes in that envelope, but... To my surprise last night, when I went to the safe to get the letters out to bring them to church this morning, they weren't there. My wife had gone through and organized my safe, and she put letters to Jim, special cards to Jim, everything was in on a little envelope. 36 years they've been laying in a safe. Actually, they really weren't. This one right here. Yeah, I'm not going to show you. <laughs> We were, living, we were living kind of rural one time, and we heard this one night. I pulled out the drawer of my dresser where I kept these, and the mouse was eating my love letters. So if you open them up, you kind of got to look through all the chew parts on them, but they're still special. And I was not sure why my wife decided to organize my mail. It did perfectly good by itself just sitting in that safe, but anyway... But Paul claims, go to 1 Timothy, we're going to do an overview for two weeks and then we'll be done. Paul claims authorship in 1 Timothy. And how do we know that? Because Paul starts almost all of his letters out the same way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of our God and Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. Paul claims authorship. I believe the word of God is true. I believe the way it's been translated, it's true. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but there, we have 66 books in the Bible, and there are a lot of guys a whole lot smarter than me that sat there and they called it canonizing the scripture. And they weighed all the books because there are other writings they're not included in the scripture because they're not they didn't measure up to this checks and balance when they these guys sat down to figure out what really belongs in the bible they were very careful that every book belongs there and they weighed them against a whole bunch of criteria this book 
made the test. Paul says, I wrote this book to a true son in the faith. Now, Timothy wasn't his son, but he was mentoring him. And that's what this is, is a mentoring book. And he says, by the command of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. What is our hope? What is our hope? Without Christ in our life, we have no hope. Have you, you, you guys have probably been to a lot more funerals than me, but there's a difference. You go to a funeral of someone that you know knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they can rejoice at that funeral. But you go to a funeral of someone that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, and it's so sad because they don't have that hope. A few weeks, we're getting ready to celebrate Easter. We're celebrating Resurrection Sunday. And actually, the lunch today is not an Easter lunch. It's a spring lunch. I don't know. And everybody can come to that. Even if you didn't bring anything, you didn't know anything about it, come upstairs and have food because we got lots of food. I made sure of that. I asked the ladies, you got plenty of food? And they said, no problem. But I think that if we understand that Paul is telling us about our Savior, and where our hope lies. It lies in Jesus Christ. And he's writing verses 3 to 10. He's telling him, uh, and he, he, he uses a command, and it doesn't look like it, but it's actually a command in the, in the language that I urge you, that's a command, but then he says in the same verse, I charge, he said in verse 3, I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That charge is a command. You need to be teaching the truth. And you need to tell others to teach the truth. I mean, we see that today. We know that Scripture says that in latter times, and we're in the latter times, that men will be teaching things that are not true from the Word of God. Paul's telling Timothy to make sure that the church in Ephesus is only being taught the truth of Scripture. And you've got to understand, they didn't have 66 books. How do we know they didn't have all 66 books? Because he's writing one of them right now. And then he's going to write 2 Timothy after 1 Timothy. So it's not even all written. But they have the Old Testament. And he's telling Timothy, make sure you teach the truth of what you have in Scripture. Don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in the faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love. And what's that love from? It's from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. How are we supposed to behave towards each other? We see it over and over and over. I think there's a, yeah, there's still a heart there. And there's a heart there. And there's a heart back there. We should have a heart for one another. We should show love to each other. Even the people you don't like. Because how are they going to see Christ in us 
They need to see that love that we have for one another. The purpose of the command is love. He's telling Paul, Paul's telling Timothy, I'm writing this book to you, this letter to you so that you will know how to instruct the church in what they should be doing. And we've spent a lot of time looking at how the church should operate through this book. Because, verse 6 says, For, from which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law. We don't live under the law. We live under grace because of Christ's death on the cross. I think it's really kind of fun that did you notice anything interesting about the songs this morning? We talked, we sang about amazing grace. We sang, oh, what, re, well, that one, Refiner's Fire. Anybody think anything funny about that? That wasn't supposed to be done this morning, but Mike wasn't supposed to teach Sunday school. And what did he talk about this morning in Sunday school? the offerings that were brought, or the sacrifices that were brought to the altar, they were burned up with fire. How are we doing? What's God do with us? We go through fires. We go through times to refine us, to help teach us. And then one, one of the old hymns, what did we do, Sue? Huh? Nope, not that one. How Great Thou Art. Verse 4. Can you throw verse 4 up there? Oh, I just need to see the word. See, when you don't have... When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? You know, people that don't know Christ as their Savior try and find joy in a bottle or drugs or whatever their pleasures are that they think are going to make them happy. We can look forward as Christians to going to heaven and being in the presence of God. You ever ask yourself, why do I need... Christ says, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. He's building mansions for us. And i got to believe they're apartments but they're going to be really cool apartments. Ron's a good builder, but these apartments are going to be high, high, high class. You ever ask yourself, what do we need one for? Because what are we going to be doing? We're going to be worshiping God. We're going to be singing holy, holy, holy. I don't think we need to sleep. So I'm not sure. I, mean, I haven't. I, 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 that's that little short I got back here. I wonder why do we need a mansion when we're going to be in God's presence? It's never going to be dark. So obviously we don't need it to sleep because there won't even be a need for the sun because of God's brilliance and radiance is going to shine through all of that. You ever looked at heaven? We talked a few weeks ago about not, about not taking the U-Haul behind the hearse. 
because they didn't need any pavement up there. We don't need to take gold because they got all the pavement they need. But what color is the gold in heaven? But what color is it? What color is gold? Really? Sue, you will, you will remember this from today on. Gold is not yellow. Revelation 21, 21. It'll be there in a second. I love, I, me and electronics don't get along, so I'm glad Sue knows how to do this stuff. Revelation 21, 21 says the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Can you imagine a pearl per gate? How big that oyster must have been? And each individual gate was one pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now what color is gold? It's transparent. Why? It's pure gold. Do you know that in some of your electronics, if you would melt it down and could pull it all back together, there's gold in your computer? But you know why you can't see it? Because they've proven if you beat gold into very, 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 very thin sheets, it's clear. It's pure gold that's been refined. We're going we're gonna to be walking down the streets of gold and we're going to go, hey, there's, yeah, there's Mark. Oh, there's, there's Pat's house over there because you're going to be able to see through it because it's transparent. And imagine, how big is heaven? How big? We all, we, we in our minds, we think of this big. I mean, I saw, I saw the same flannel graphs that most of you did when you grew up in church. Heaven's flat and all these buildings and stuff, and there's a throne right in the middle, right? Heaven is 20 miles square. It's a cube. And I don't think we're going to need elevators to get up and down in it. So what should we be looking for? We should be looking forward. As Paul's telling Timothy, we rejoice in the hope of eternity. This is going to go away. Everything that we know here is going to go away at some time, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. I'm looking forward to the day that I go to be with my Savior. But we know, verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I love to study the law, God's law. I actually studied law in college when I first got out of the military, business law. Yuck. Bad stuff. I used to have a book in my office, church law from a secular view on things that happen in churches that you need to know how to take care of. Boring. But when I read God's law, it's, it's beautiful. I'm glad we don't live under it because I wouldn't want to be bringing all those animals in. No way. 
But then jump over to verse 12. Verse 12 says, I thank Christ our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. You ever shared, tried to share Christ with somebody and they've said, I can't get saved. I'm too bad. You don't know all the bad things I've done. You ever, done, you ever talked to somebody and had them tell you that? You need to get out and talk to no more people because that's one of their main excuses or actually, you know the first big excuse, I don't want to get saved? Christians can't have any fun. Oh, i got to tell you, you can have fun. But a lot of people I've talked to says, I could never get saved because I'm so bad. Here's your answer to that. Paul said, you think you're bad, Mark? You ain't nothing compared to Paul. Paul said, I'm the worst of the worst. And God changed my life. So when somebody tells you, I can't get saved because of all the bad things I did, you can say, Paul's already taken care of that because he said he's the worst. The worst of the worst. And if you studied Paul's life before he got saved, yeah, he's a bad dude. And look at what happened to him when he met our Savior. The transformation. Chapter 2 says, Therefore I exert I exhort, first of all, the supplications, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Who should we be praying for? Oh, wait, we talked about that in Sunday school, didn't we? We got a prayer sheet right here on the table. This was, I think, this week's prayer sheet. Let's see. Yeah, it is. These are the people... If you want to know who got prayed for this week? They're right here. Wait a minute. There's somebody who fell down and bummed up their face the night before. He's on, he's on here. Right there. You don't believe me, you can come and look. If you're not sure who we're talking about, look for the guy with the black eye today. We pray for people. But you know what? I don't... You like praying for our politicians? I can tell. I can tell you do. Yeah. But you know what? God tells us that we ought to pray for them. They need it. They really need it. But you know what? If we don't pray for them, I pray that God will put somebody in their path that will tell them about Christ because I'm not going to be in their path because I'm not, I'm not there. But there are ministries who the whole, capital ministries, I don't know how they're doing now, but capital ministries goal was to have 
a missionary in every state capital in the United States that went in and did Bible studies for people in the legislature and their ultimate goal was to have missionaries in DC to witness to politicians. I think it's interesting. You know one of the things they taught their missionaries in candidate school? How to tie a tie right. I'm not a tie guy. I learned how to tie a tie when I went in the military. I don't know how to make all them fancy knots and stuff, but there's a difference in how you tie a tie if you're working with politicians. And they taught them how to do that so they could fit in to that culture. We should be praying for our president. Whether you like him or not, whether you like what he's doing or not, or you think he's the greatest person on the face of this earth, we need to pray for him. Because that's what we're supposed to do. Oh, wait, it says, for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. What's it say in John? We learned John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But what's John 3.15 say? Come on, you should have known this, memorized this one a long time ago. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. Christ didn't come to condemn. He came to save man. Paul saying that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. And we're going to look in a couple weeks at Resurrection Sunday. Actually, we're going to look at Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in a for two weeks. We celebrate Christmas. You know I love Christmas, but I also love Easter. Can't have one without the other. God sent his son to be born in a manger to go to the cross for you and me. Then I, I told you Paul was telling Timothy how to run the church. <clears throat> we had our deacons meeting yesterday afternoon. And it really wasn't that long. I've been in, I heard that, and it might have been a little long, but I've been in deacons meetings that lasted three and four hours. I don't like those deacons meetings. Get it done. But what's it take to be a deacon? I came up with 17 different, or no, wait, this is for me, for the elders. You want to be a pastor, teacher? Blameless, husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent, not greedy for money, gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own household well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And then in parenthesis, these are my notes, this isn't, you know, this is all taken from scripture. But in parenthesis I put, if the home is a mess, how will he handle the church? Because that's what it says. That's what it says in 
in chapter 3, let's see. For if a man does not, in First Timothy 3, verse 5 says, For a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And my translation, my, my notes say, if, if home is a mess, how will he handle the church? Not a novice, must have a good testimony. I think too often we, we take really young Christians, we put them into positions of key leadership in the church that are not ready for it. That's why God warns us about not putting a novice in. But how about the deacons? Everybody wants to be a deacon in the church, right? Actually, some people don't. You'd be surprised how hard it is to find deacons sometimes because they, they've looked at God's word and in first Tim, again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says a deacon needs to be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith, be first tested, blameless, husband and wife, rule their children and their house well. Oh, but likewise, their wives need to be reverent, not slanders or gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. You know, sometimes in deacons meetings, we talk about things that need to be dealt with in the church. And one of the reasons that God tells us that our wives need to not be gossips is the deacons go home and share with their wives what happened in a deacons meeting so the wives can pray effectively. And I've been in churches where it's come back later that everybody in the church knows what's going on because one of the deacon's wives couldn't keep her mouth shut. There are things we need to share with each other to pray about. There are things that shouldn't be shared around that need to be dealt with. And I think that's why God tells us that that's one of the requirements for uh, an elder and a deacon's wife is they can't be slanderers, they can't be gossips. And then Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 3, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. This letter was to Timothy on how the early church was to be handled. But you know what? It's, it's how the church should be handled today. How we should take care of the church. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and ground of the truth. What is that ground? What's that referring to? That's the foundation. That's the foundation. Some of you know we bought a house. <laughs> is it really a house, Ron? Kinda. Ron's son's coming over tomorrow sometime and he's gonna look to see now that the snow's melting, we actually have a river that runs through the crawl space in the house. We're living, I told Sharon, I said, we could do a water feature down there and just have a stream flowing right through the house all the time. But Ron's son's gonna come over and help me look at the foundation and what we can do to get rid of this river. And when I study God's word, I realize the foundation for the church is built on God and Jesus Christ. Without a strong foundation, the church will crumble. 
Just like a building without a strong foundation will not stand. Verse 16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that, that hidden truth. And God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceit, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy and having their own conscience seared with hot irons. We, and, and you're going to hear me say this over and over, we have to be a living testimony to people that are outside of the church, outside of these four walls. That we stand on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We serve a living God. I'm excited about that. But we know that some places are departing from the truth of the Word of God. I got to tell you, if I depart from the truth and I start to stray, I'm expecting one of the deacons to stand up and say, that's wrong. I've, I've been in ministry for a long time. And I've often... In 1979, when Sharon was writing these letters to me on a deployment, uh, I worked a full-time job, was a weekend warrior, and we helped start our first church in Phoenix, Arizona. We were part of the startup of a new church there almost 40 years ago. Eh, 36 years ago. I know because my son was born when, while we were working at that church. And we tried to build a solid foundation for that church. Standing on the truth of the word of God and letting people see Christ through us. We didn't have a building. They never bought a building. We rented a school. I took an old school bus, pulled the seats out of it and made a mobile nursery. We had a crib and a changing table and a little play area for the kids and it was all divided off. Looked a little odd, school bus going down the road with toys and stuff bouncing around in it. But that was our nursery. Because we had people that would come to that church that would never walk in the doors of a church with a steeple because of the testimony of people they had seen going in to churches with steeple on. What do we look like outside? We're going to talk in our next deacons meeting about where we want to be next year as a church. And how are we going to get there? You know, that. what are our goals? I guess that's what we're looking at is what are our goals. Our goal, my goal, is to need to add more rows. But I want you all to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God. I want you to get excited about what Christ has done in your life. We ought to be excited. Go to a football game. You know what I'm looking forward to? Somebody bought me this thing the other day, and I actually picked up an extra station on the TV because we got two PBS stations so far on an antenna. What's coming up? What's, what's the...
big event that's actually today's choosing day, I guess, or however they do it. What, what's today, Mark? Sunday. Okay, who's a, who's a sports fanatic in here? Obviously not, Mark. Now, if we're talking hunting, we might get somewhere. Draft day. It's something else, too, isn't it? Isn't it selection day for seating for March Madness? Huh? I hope so. You get excited about March Madness? Obviously not. Why do they call it March Madness? Because the fans go crazy. Because they're excited. My team is supposed to be a number one this year. I don't know how they did this. Way. Yeah, I do. They beat UCLA. Woo! I, oh, you know, the, the whole time we were missionaries in California, we never saw an Arizona basketball game because they didn't let you see them because they always got whooped by Arizona. And in 15 years, I think the only game we've seen was one of their last games this year, and they lost. Somehow we had this fluke on the TV, and the game came in, and they lost. Sharon thought, well, we were so excited about that, she took a picture of it and put it on Facebook. And our friends in Arizona said, yeah, but uh, we get excited. That's why they call it March Madness. You watch football? Who watches football? Does everybody sit in their seats in the football stadium and go, raw, raw? Who's your team? Go Steelers. <laughs> right? That's what you do when you're watching the game, right? Go Steelers. When people see us and see Christ in us, what do they see? Oh, the Christians. We can't, we can't have any fun. Don't you dare smile, Mark. Because you're not supposed to have fun because we have to be serious. No. Over and over in the Bible it says rejoice. Sing praises to God. We shouldn't walk around like this, but oh my goodness, when I go outside, I've got to be like this because I'm, I'm a Christian. Isn't that what the world sees? So many times from Christians. I don't want to be a Christian. They don't have any fun. You can't have any fun. Well, you can. Rejoice in the Lord. I, you know what would be the best thing that could happen today? Woo! And what are we going to hear, Pat? We're going to hear a trumpet, voice of the archangel. And as we heard this week, that when the Lord comes back for us, graves are going to be popping open. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and those who are alive and well shall be caught up to meet him in the air. It's going to happen faster than that. And we're going to be in the presence of God. But you know what? There's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to make it because they've never accepted Christ as their personal Savior. He made it tough, didn't he? Had to follow all these rules, right? It's really tough to become a Christian, isn't it? You got to give up this, you got to give up that, you got to give up... Anybody raised that way? 
I was, I was raised in a hellfire brimstone pulpit bumping church. I got a little excited last week. You missed it. I actually beat the pulpit once last week. Maybe I even did it twice. Where I grew up, it's a wonder the pulpit survived. They was always beating on it. But you know what they were real careful to tell you? You're either going to spend eternity in heaven or you're going to spend eternity in hell. There are no other choices. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, you and your household. In Ecuador, when we were down there doing children's ministry and stuff, and we gave an invitation, the kids would raise their hand if they wanted to accept Christ. We weren't allowed to talk to them. They would write their number, names down and they would give it to the pastor. The pastor would go to the home and he would sit down with the whole family. Because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, you and your household. So if he would go to the house and share Christ with the dad and mom and dad said it's okay, that whole family would get saved. I'm telling you what, them churches grew because they grew by families. But we come to Christ on our... It's my personal faith in Jesus Christ. I ask Christ to forgive me of my sins and be Lord of my life. We're going to sing a closing song. And I think we're doing it at acapella. We're going to do just as I am. That's how we come to Christ, just as we are. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, think about what happens if the Lord was to return right now and you're not ready to go to meet Him in the air. You know for a fact that if you died right now, you're going to spend eternity in hell separated from God for eternity. Are you ready? How do we come to Christ? Just as I am. You need to talk to me about that now. Glad to talk to you now. Mark, any of the men from the church, anytime you want to talk. You want to know how to get saved? I'd love to share with you how to do that. But let's stand and sing a closing song.